0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. We're reading from Joshua chapter
1: 2, verses 1 to 14. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. And deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, to really, God. Thank you, Paul. Well, here's a cool story. A few years ago, a young kid called Zavi Ahmed, five-year-old boy from East Sussex in England, became a hero after rescuing a toddler from a locked car. The toddler's grandmother was at the local supermarket, but as she was loading the groceries up into the boot, she managed to lock the car, leaving the child, the one-year-old Iris, locked inside. Uh, Frantic, she called the police who rushed to the car park uh, and smashed the window of the car, but then couldn't get actually through themselves. Perhaps they had too many donuts. Uh, and, but thankfully, this little kid Zavi was on hand. He saw the commotion and came up and said, look, what if I come in? I, I'm small enough. I'll crawl in. And so they uh, made sure that he could get in through there and he retrieved the keys and they were able to rescue little Iris. And the best bit was that Zavi was dressed in a Batman costume. Uh, <laughs> His mum said, Zavi loves to dress up, and that morning he had to be Batman, and my friend jokingly said, he can be a superhero at the supermarket, and we couldn't believe it when he actually was. I love uh, stories about unlikely heroes. Uh, we all love these stories, don't we? Think about those uh Great heroes from the the great stories of literature and movies like Katniss in The Hunger Games or The Hobbits in Lord of the Rings or Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. Uh, Really, these are echoes ultimately of the Bible because the, the Bible is full of unlikely heroes. Think about timid Gideon or David, the shepherd boy who takes on the giant Goliath or even just the church itself coming from nothing to become the most dominant religion of the mighty Roman Empire. Well, today we meet one of the most unlikely heroes of all, Rahab, the ultimate outsider, a prostitute living in a city doomed for God's judgment, who rescues God's people and sets up one of the most remarkable victories in the Bible. She's an extraordinary character and it's an amazing story. And today I want to unpack it and see what we can learn from it. First of all, a little bit of context. Last week, we began our series in Joshua, and we saw that it was a crucial moment for God's people. They'd they'd come up out of Egypt, and they were now on the brink of the the land that God had promised them. But the man who had led them there, Moses, this extraordinary leader, had just passed away, and Joshua is is coming along to fill his place. And so there's lots of questions. Will Joshua be able to lead the way that Moses had, and, and will the people have the courage and the faith to step into the land? They've been in this position once before and they've turned back. What will happen this time? Well, last week, we saw that God stepped in to provide encouragement. That word encourage means to put heart into, and we saw how God put heart into Joshua, affirmed that he had prepared him for this task, that he was the leader that God had appointed. And then he called him to strength and courage a physical strength and courage, but even more than that, a spiritual strength and courage. He he said, if you follow my will, if you do my law, if you have the strength and the courage to do that, then you'll see my blessing. And Joshua embraced this and the people did as well. And and really the passage was very uplifting. we we kind of left with this real great situation. There's all of these questions, but we have a strong sense that God's people are going to respond in faith. And so it's time now for Joshua and the people to step up and to head into the land to take their first step. And the first step is for Joshua to send out some spies on a reconnaissance mission to see exactly what the land is like and to uh, get ready for what they need to do next. You can imagine for Joshua, there was probably a sense of deja vu as he did this. You remember from last week that Israel had been in this position in Numbers 13, they'd been right on the brink of the promised land and again they had sent spies into the land but then it had all gone wrong. You see, the spies went into the land and they saw that it was beautiful, but they also saw how big and imposing the people were. They said, oh, look, there's these, the, the people that are enormous and there's fortified cities, we, we can't take them on. They felt like grasshoppers before them, they said. And so they were terrified and God was really hurt by this offended by this you see he had promised to his people that he would lead them to this land and that he would give it to them and now he hadn't done anything to suggest that he wouldn't follow through on that promise and so they had doubted him and so in response God actually judges that whole generation and says look if you fail to have the faith that i'm looking for then I'm going to bar you from the land. And he turns them away. And there's a whole generation that wanders the wilderness for 40 years until they die out. Only two people survive, Caleb and Joshua. You see, these two guys were also part of the spy team that went into the land, but they had urged faith. They told the people, yes, the land is great, but God is even greater. Numbers 14, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They had shown faith and courage, and because of that, God had honoured their faith, and so they had been permitted to, to live, and now they're here on the, on the brink of the Promised Land, about to enter into it. So you can imagine, though, that Joshua is a little bit anxious as he sends these spies out. He's wondering to himself, will these spies do the right thing? Will they have faith as well, or will we be turned back once more? Let's find out. Well, Joshua picks out these two spies and instructs them to head for Jericho. Uh, The people of the land were spread across numerous city-states. Each city was essentially a state or a nation or a tribe and had a king. Uh, Jericho was one of the biggest and the most important. In fact, historians say that it's the oldest city in the world. There'd been civilizations that had lived here thousands of years before uh, what we're reading here in Joshua 2. The city itself covered about eight or nine acres. And from what we can tell from archaeology, it seems like there were two big walls uh, separated uh, about 15 feet apart all around the city. So it's a very well-defended city, very hard to get through. And so really it's setting up a test. If God can enable them to get past Jericho, then he can probably help them get past anything. So the spies go to Jericho to check it out. But you'd have to say that things don't go very well. They get there, and they're discovered. But thankfully, they're protected by a woman in the city, this woman called Rahab. They'd come to her house, a brothel, really, and they'd stayed there. This is reported to the king of Jericho, who sends soldiers to find them. Bring out the men who've come to you, who've entered your house. And, of course, we know, as the readers, that Rahab has taken them and hidden them on the roof, verse 2, but she doesn't tell them that. Without a, a flicker or a blink, she answers the soldiers coolly and calmly. True. The man came, men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. They're taken in by her ruse. They take up the chase. And as soon as they do that, she races upstairs onto the roof and speaks to the spies and pleads for her life. She says, oh, look, I know that God is going to give this city to you, so please protect me and my family when you come through. The spies agree to this and then she helps them escape. They hide out for a couple of days and they get back to the camp to Joshua and they give him a report. And this time, unlike the last time, this time they give a positive report. Verse 24, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Unlike the spies from the past, these guys have faith that God will come through. And so we end this little story with this real sense of optimism. Things are going to work. It's a great story, too. I mean, it would make an amazing movie. But what are we supposed to learn from it? What what can we pick out of this? Well, I want to suggest that one of the ways that we could read this story is through the the lens of heroism. Because first of all, we we see unlikely heroes, but we also see, first of all, we see a likely hero. See, when we see these spies for the first time, you would expect them to be the heroes. They're Jewish, so they're part of God's people. They're probably some of their best soldiers. Just think for Joshua, the last time it had gone so badly with the spies, so he would have chosen these spies very, very carefully. He would have made sure that these were people of courage but also of faith, people who would go into the land trusting that God could provide for them, then come back with an accurate and a hopeful and an optimistic faith-filled message. So these are the best of the best. This is James Bond and Jason Bourne. These are the best spies that you can imagine. But they don't turn out to be very good at their job. In verse 1, we're told that they're sent out into the land on a secret mission, and verse 2, they're found. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but, but when I was growing up, when I went to spy school, I was taught that you had to be very subtle and you had to be able to do your job without anyone working out that you were there. So these guys are a little bit amateurish and they've been found out. And just think, this could have had devastating consequences. I mean, imagine the people, they're, they're waiting to hear back from these spies. And, and if they—if they if they don't come back, then they're going to assume that they've been captured and killed. And that's going to rock the faith of God's people enormously. Like this whole idea of taking the land, well, if even our spies can't get in, how are we going to get in as a whole people? So this could have been a real disaster. And yet they're rescued by this Rahab lady. And so actually what happens is their ineptitude points to something else. It shows that even if they can't do it themselves, God is doing it for them. That God is actually looking after them. Now, I think that's one of the things that God wants his people to see in this story. See, this story would have first been told by the people to each other before, long before it was written down. And as they're hearing this story, they're hearing that God is looking after them, that God is coming through for them. And think of the encouragement that is for them. You know, they're about to take this land, they're about to enter this land they're intimidated by it it's an enormous land you might remember from last week if you were to look at it on a modern map the the land would encompass the territories of Kuwait Lebanon uh, Jordan half of Iraq parts of Saudi Arabia and Syria like it's a huge land and the people themselves are enormous in fact there's even some suggestion that some of them are giants if you want to google just google uh, nephilim this week and you get a you'll go down a, an amazing rabbit hole so it'd be easy for God's people to quake in fear. That's what they did the last time. It would be easy for them to think it's not going to work this time either. But God is showing them that they are in his hands, that he is looking after them, that it's actually their enemies who are afraid. Verse 10, Barahab says, the people have heard how the Lord has done miracles for you and defeated your enemies. And so... To their credit, the spies come back and they say to to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. See, normally God's people are the ones who are afraid. But here, they're being told that their enemies are the ones who are afraid because God is in control. See, they're not afraid because God's people are strong or powerful or clever or even courageous. They're afraid because... Of God's power. This is exactly what God said would happen. In Deuteronomy 11, in Moses' sermon to the people, not long before he died, he says, when you go up to the land, no one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. And now they're seeing that that promise is already being fulfilled. And so they can step into the land confident that God is leading them there that God has gone ahead of them, that God is the hero, not them. And yet, of course, in this story, we see that God works through someone, a very unlikely hero. Rahab is an unlikely hero for a bunch of reasons. First of all, she's a Canaanite, so she's one of the enemy. Her loyalty should have been to her people. Like if anyone found out what she had done, She would be killed for treason. So it's an unlikely hero. There's nothing in this you would think for her. Secondly, she's an unlikely hero because she's a woman. In the ancient world, women had little status and few rights, were afforded scant respect. Now, of course, the Old Testament shows a very different picture. There's lots of heroic women in the Bible. Think Sarah or Ruth or Jael with their tent peg or Queen Esther. And yet, as a Jew, even as you're reading this story, you're not expecting the woman to be the hero. But, of course, the third thing that makes her so unlikely is she's a prostitute. Uh, This would have been problematic even in pagan Jericho. Uh, As the story progresses, we see that a house was built into the city walls, and so uh, she was Basically, the city walls, if your house was there, it was the most vulnerable part of the city. If there was an attack, your house was the first to go. And so in a very literal sense, she's been pushed to the fringes of her society. As one writer puts it, she'd be tolerated but still despised for her profession. So that makes her unlikely. And, of course, there's another reason that she's unlikely. Well, she's a liar. So we need to, have to, we need to grapple with this lie. Don't we? I mean, the whole story hinges on her deception. Uh, David Jackman says a lie may be defined as a distortion or denial of the truth with the intention to deceive, and that's what she does, doesn't she? She's hidden the soldiers. We know that she's hidden the soldiers, but when uh, hidden the spies, but when the soldiers come, she lies and says, "No, no, no, they're not here. They've gone." Like it, it's a lie, and this raises ethical questions for us i mean we know we're not supposed to lie i'm sure you're hoping that in city kids today we're not teaching that lying is the best policy and yet we feel a bit ambivalent about this lie because it feels like she did the right thing because it was so crucial to the story she protected people's lives with it so what are we to do with this uh, it's tricky because the bible is actually silent on it it's neither affirmed or condemned what she does so people are kind of split on it uh, many were the people that say many people would say that she chose the lesser of two evils there's two things that could have she could have done that were wrong she could have lied or she could have exposed the spies she felt like this was the lesser evil to lie and so she did that Other people say, well, she still lacked faith. She should have just been honest and trusted that God would protect them some other way. I don't know where you would land on this, but I tend towards charity here. For a start, there's something profoundly selfless about what she does. See, often when we deceive, it's because we're trying to protect ourselves We want to protect ourselves and our reputation. We don't want to get in trouble for something, so we lie about what we've done. But here, she is lying to protect someone else. In fact, if she told the truth, she would have been in no danger at all. So there's something selfless about her actions. I think we also have to recognize the moral pressure that she's in. As Warren Wearsby put it, puts it, it's one thing for me to tell the truth about myself and suffer for it, but do I have the right to cause the death of others, especially those who've come under my roof for protection? And so you think about, uh, say, during World War II, you think about Oscar Schindler or Cory ten Boom uh, lying to protect the Jews from the Holocaust. Like, that feels like something, you, you might feel like it's a responsibility. You have a moral responsibility to protect them. Either way, I think we can at least understand why this was such a difficult decision and why she would do what she does. As Wearsby points out, there's other heroes in the Bible, like Abraham or Isaac or David, who also lied when they were under pressure. And if seasoned believers like these, he says, resorted to deception, we better not be too hard on Rahab. But actually, I don't think we should get too hung up on this ethical question Because the text doesn't. It seems significant that the lie is recorded and then the story keeps moving. It's like God wants us not to focus on her lie, but on the truth that she proclaimed, her confession, her confession of faith. You see, why does she choose to protect the spies? She's risking everything. She's doing the most dangerous thing that she could do. She will die if anyone finds out. So why does she do, do this? Well, we see in this passage is because she's come to believe in God. Just look at what she says. Verse 8, she verse 9. She says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What an extraordinary speech. Uh, And I want you to see just how extraordinary, extraordinary it is for this to come from a woman who's, who's grown up in an entirely different culture. She's hardly, she only just heard about Yahweh, the Israelite God. She's grown up with hundreds of other gods. But somehow, just now, she has heard about God and she has sensed that he is different, that he is unique, that he is superior to, to anyone else, any other God that she has known. And, you know, the language that she uses is used by only some of the, the greatest names in Jewish history. So Moses, for instance, in Deuteronomy 4 says, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Well, King Solomon says it about God as well. There is there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Now, these are two of the greatest figures in Jewish history who say these words, who, who understand this truth. And here is this Canaanite woman who grew up not knowing God at all, but she has come to believe in him. And it's not just that she believes the truth about God, that he's great, she has also sensed the character of God, that he is the God reigning in the heavens above, but also active and present on the earth below, that a personal God who one writer says, would work on behalf of those who trusted him. And she's actually sure that he can be trusted. Verse 9, she says, he has given you the land. She speaks about it as if it's a done deal. Like they've only just entered the land. But he, she already knows that God is going to do this. She's sure of it. She believes that when God promises to do something, he fulfills those promises. And so she has decided to trust him. She's thrown in her lot with God and with God's people. She has entrusted herself to him. And that is a mark of true faith. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, true faith moves the whole person. Like it's something that we have in our heads and then it moves our emotions and then it changes what we do. We act on it. Dale Ralph Davis Davis says, here is the evidence of faith. Genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God, but presses on to take refuge in God. Saving faith is always like this. It always runs to take refuge under God's wings. That's what Rahab is doing. She's running to take refuge under God. She is then a hero of faith and a model for us to follow. You know, some people have tried to clean up Rahab's image a little bit. So jarring to have a prostitute as the hero of the story. So some people have suggested that perhaps she wasn't actually that. So the word translated prostitute or harlot in other versions can also mean one who keeps an inn. So some people say maybe she was just an innkeeper. This is just a hotel that she was running. But the Bible won't let us do that. James 2 describes her as a prostitute. So does Hebrews 11. You see, God wants us to know that Rahab was a prostitute, but that she could still be part of God's plans. And I think she's included here as the hero to be both a challenge to us and an encouragement. First of all, she's a challenge to us. See, when we read this story, it would be easy for us to kind of admire her faith, but still sort of look down our noses at her, to think, oh, God doesn't normally work through people like her. But the Bible doesn't allow us to patronise her. The Bible actually honours her. James 2, uh, the apostle, is talking about the importance of faith, and how true faith leads to works, leads to action. And then he's looking for an example of this, and he points to Rahab. He says, this is the kind of faith that leads to action. This is what you should be like. And then in Hebrews 11, Uh, We have this extraordinary story. So basically the hall of fame of great people of faith, the heroes who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire. All of these incredible characters who have had enormous faith and, and it's just a hall of fame. People like Noah and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Moses and Samuel and David and Rahab. She is counted among them as a hero of faith, as someone that we should be following and and learning from. And so actually our response to her, I suspect, says more about us than it says about her. I remember a story one time about a guy who was pastoring a church that was pretty conservative. You know, everyone turned up in their Sunday best. And in the middle of this conservative middle-class church, uh, a guy became a Christian who was a drug addict, and just a beautiful story of conversion and faith. Obviously, he still had some things to work through in his life, and this was kind of could sometimes rub up against other people. And so one day, someone ran up to the pastor, breathlessly told him, Oh, did you see that Mark was smoking at the front of church today? To which the pastor replied, Well, what was he smoking? <laughs> He's improving. And the point being, we don't judge people by where they're at. We need to remember and look at where they've come from and how far God has brought them. And it's the same with Rahab. Her life is still a bit messy. Her faith isn't perfect. But look how far she's come. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we just ignore sin in the lives of people. And I'm very sure that Rahab didn't remain a prostitute. See, the gospel changes us, right? In 1 John 1, we confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our sin as well, from our unrighteousness. So we come as we are, but we don't stay as we are. God, God changes us. That's his demand and that's what the beautiful work that he does within us. But this is a process. And so as we walk alongside people, we need to remember what God is where God has taken them from, what God is in the process of doing, as Robert Hubbard puts it, see people see them as people whom God has on the way somewhere, not people who've reached their final destination. But to be honest, I don't even like this language of them, what they're doing, what they're like. because actually it's us. we're all like Rahab. We're all on a journey. We're all sinners, saved by grace, who God is progressively changing. We come as we are, a mess, and God is changing us. So we have no right to be arrogant or dismissive of others. And so if we're scandalised by the story of Rahab, I think we're scandalised by God's grace, And that's possible only if we've forgotten what it tastes like for ourselves. I mean, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, think back to when you first tasted God's grace. Didn't you thrill to the thought that God could forgive you? You. You were so, you weren't thinking about someone else's sin in that moment. You were thinking about your own sin. It was heavy on you. And then you discovered that God could forgive you. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And if those words have gone cold for you, and it's only because you've forgotten God's grace, but don't let them stay cold. It's actually a very dangerous place for us to be in once we lose sight of the wonder of God's grace. You see, when we lose sight of that, we become self-righteous. And a person who is self-righteous is trusting in their own righteousness, right? That's not how we're saved. I mean, this is the gospel, isn't it? Romans 3, none of us is righteous. No, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserve to be there with God. None of us can be entitled to his grace. None of us is saved through our works. We're all like Rahab. We're all outsiders with God, but we can all be accepted. And, you know, the the most mature people in faith are also the most humble. You see this all the time. The people who are the most godly, are the ones who feel most keenly God's grace. And it makes sense, doesn't it? The more time you spend with God, reflecting on his glory, you realise how far short you fall. So you become more and more thankful. You see, the encouragement of Rahab is that even though we're sinful, God loves us. And it's proof that God can work in and through anyone. And that's really the story of the Bible, isn't it? God is constantly using the most unlikely people to do his work. I don't know where I first saw this, but I've said it before. It's this great little, it's not quite a poem, but it's this great little thing about the characters of the Bible and how unlikely they were. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused, Moses studded, Gideon was afraid, Samson was a womanizer, David had an affair and was a murderer, Elijah was suicidal, Isaiah preached naked, Jonah ran from God, Job went bankrupt, John the Baptist ate bugs, Peter denied Christ, the disciples fell asleep while praying, Zacchaeus was too small, Timothy was too young, Paul was too religious, and Lazarus, well, he was dead. And yet God worked in and through them all. Let that be an encouragement for you tonight. It doesn't matter what your past is. With God, you can have a future. Anyone can be a part of God's family, God's people, and God can work in and through anyone as long as you're willing to humble yourself. That's what Rahab did. She sensed God's mighty power and holiness, and she humbled herself before him and entrusted herself to him. Are we willing to humble ourselves before God? See, this will become one of the great themes of the book of Joshua. Joshua. We're going to see God's power repeatedly throughout this book and we're going to see how different people respond to it. Today we see Rahab. Let me tell you about a couple of other people. I'll I'll do a bit of a spoiler for further down the story because I think there's a couple of other characters in Joshua who give another different approach, different response. The first is a guy called Achan. We're going to meet him in Chapter 7. He's a Jew of the tribe of Judah. He's one of the warriors in God's army. And so he is the most likely person to be a hero, to be one of God's people. But it turns out that he's not. He disobeys God and ignores God's commands. He sees God's power. We're going to see next week, he's going to see God split the seas of the River Jordan and he's going to walk through. He's going to see that. He's going to see Jericho tumble down, spoiler, (laughs) He's going to see all of these incredible examples of God's power and then he's going to defy God and ignore him and be cut off from God's people. And then there's this other guy later on in chapter 13 called Balaam. Now, if you know your Bible, you might recognise that name. Like Rahab, Balaam is a Canaanite and he comes from one of the craziest stories in the Bible. Uh, Balaam is a prophet of the people of Moab, their enemies of Israel, and their king Balak asks Balaam to curse the Israelites. And so he's about to go there to Balak and, and do this, but on the way, his donkey that he's riding on starts acting up because the donkey sees an angel of God. And then Balaam starts talking to his donkey, and there's this weird bit where it feels like He always talks to his donkey. It's completely normal to him that he just talks to him. And anyway, God reveals himself to Balaam because the donkey's like, look, I'm not walking this way because God's in the way. And then God reveals himself to Balaam and he humbles himself and he chooses not to do the wrong thing. There's this amazing moment where he sees God's power and he responds in humility. Now, you would think that after that he'd be changed and he would keep walking the right way and following God. We're going to see him in Joshua chapter 13 where we see that actually he resists God and he is destroyed along with the other people. So it's clear that he didn't continue on in his faith. He experienced God's greatness like Rahab but didn't continue on in faith. So there's kind of three people, Achan, Balaam and Rahab, Who are we going to be like? See, some of us, it would be easy for us to be like Achan. Just like him, many of us have grown up in the church. We've learnt about this God. We know his power. We've seen and experienced his greatness all our lives. That doesn't mean we're necessarily part of God's people. We may not actually have humbled ourselves before his greatness. Some of us could be like Balaam. Perhaps we're not from church, but we've come to church more recently and we're seeing something of God's power. We've sensed him. We've come here because we sense there is a great God out there somewhere. And maybe you've sensed some of who he is and you've experienced that, but you haven't fully given yourself to him. Or you could be like Rahab, who has heard of God's greatness and humbles herself before him she may not have been very impressive but when she saw god she responded in faith and god saw her and so god worked in and through her and he can do that in any of us in all of us why don't we pray Father God, we thank you for this just beautiful story. We thank you for Rahab, an extraordinary character. We thank you for her incredible courage and her faith. She is a hero of faith, and we ask that we might learn from her, that we might be people who hear and see your greatness and humble ourselves before you. Lord, may we not despise her. May we not despise others. May we not be self-righteous but may we only have the righteousness of Christ. Help us to humble ourselves before you, to acknowledge that we need you, and to gratefully, joyfully receive you. And then, Lord, we ask that you might work in and through us to change us and to show other people your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast.